0: These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, they made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stall, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And our passage today contains what I believe to
1: be the most important lesson for the church in our country, in our generation, to hear and take to heart. Big statement, but I believe it's true. It addresses how it is that we can live optimistically and positively, even in the face of hostility. I think it's very easy for uh, Christians in our country today to exaggerate the hostility of our culture towards uh, the Christian faith. Um, I don't know about you, but as I speak to people, um, I don't find many people who are hostile to Christianity. I think we get that impression from what's in the news, perhaps what's on our social media feed. Most people are very open to it. But there's no getting away from the fact that in recent decades, Christian truth has Moved in our culture, not just from the mainstream to the margins, but for many beyond that into the immoral and the offensive. I wonder whether you saw last week in the news uh, that a a senior politician visited a church that had become a vaccination centre to see their work, to encourage them, to thank them for what they were doing. But after his visit, he felt the need to apologise for having even visited that church. Why? Because it was later pointed out to him to that, that that church holds to a traditional Christian sexual ethic. And so he felt the need to apologize for having even visited a church like that. And it points to a trend in our culture that has been going for some while, but continues uh, strongly today, where for many, it is simply not acceptable, not only to hold, but even to visit people who hold mainstream Christian beliefs. In this country, we do still enjoy a very high level of freedom of speech. But that is being threatened. And one of the things it's being threatened for is this, that for Christians, exercising those freedoms comes at an increasingly high cost. And so even if the church isn't legislated into silence in this country, it's possible for us to nonetheless be intimidated into silence. In fact, I honestly wonder whether to a large extent we already have been. Speaking of our faith in Jesus and living for him is increasingly costly in a culture in which it is increasingly uh, hostile to the claim that Jesus is Lord. And yet the growth of the church into the next generation depends on us speaking of him and living for him. And so we have to be able to answer this. How can we, the church, live optimistically, positively, in a way that is capable of growth, even in the face of hostility? That's the question that God's people were facing in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And so that's where we're going to turn this morning for an answer to that question. And Exodus 1 begins with a word that is invisible in our translations. It's not put there because it would be bad English to begin a sentence, let alone a book, with this word. And that's the word and. Really it begins saying, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And it goes on. And that points us immediately to the fact that Exodus is the continuation of a story. That has already begun in the book of Genesis. And so, briefly, what did we see in Genesis? We had the world created, everything was very good, but then Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the world, the fall. And there, God made a promise to Eve that one day one of her descendants would be the serpent crusher, the one who would come and destroy the plans and the schemes of the evil one. And that promise continued. Uh, for many centuries later. But humanity continued its slide deeper and deeper into sin. And so we had Noah, the flood, his family survived. And then one of his descendants was a man called Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, we get promises from God made to Abraham that would shape the national destiny of the people of Israel ever afterwards. He promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation so numerous they would be a great nation he promised him a people and he promised abraham a land of their own a place that would be theirs and he promised to bless abraham and his family and through them to bless all nations abraham married sarah and they had isaac isaac married rebecca and they had jacob and jacob married rachel as it happens, he also married Rachel's sister and two others. It was a pretty messed up family. And he, he, between those four wives, had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, that Joseph. And when there was a famine, Joseph, who had been sent into Egypt as a slave, had risen through the ranks to be prime minister, was perfectly placed to help his family In a moment of desperate need. And so it turned out that his whole family went down to live in Egypt during the famine. And that's the background to Exodus 1 verses 1 to 5. This is what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. There in Egypt, God's promise to Abraham of a people seemed to be coming to pass. They went down as only 70 people, but in the next few verses, we see that they exploded in number. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. But then a great threat came to the promise of a people. Look at the next couple of verses. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites had become far too numerous for us. And so we have a people threatened. Not just the people themselves under threat, but the very promise of God of a people is under threat. The very plot line of the Bible since Genesis 3 and God's promise to Eve seems to be in jeopardy because of this one man Pharaoh, the powerful new king of Egypt. And it's worth noticing that he stands directly opposed to the promises of God. God had taken Abraham in Genesis 15 outside and told him to look up at the stars. And he said, one day your descendants are going to number more than the stars. You won't be able to count them. That's how numerous your descendants will be. But Pharaoh says, these people have become, quote, far too numerous for us. And so already the stage is set for a showdown between God and Pharaoh that will occupy the first 14 chapters of Exodus. And Pharaoh gets to work trying to suppress the growth of the people of God. It's what we see in verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so how will Pharaoh reduce The numbers of the people of Israel. We see three plans in the next verses. Plan A, oppress them so that they can't support a growing population. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were opposed, oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Even the heavy handed, ruthless slave drivers of Egypt, Pharaoh's minions, couldn't keep the numbers of the Israelites under control. Or stop the promise of God of a people. And so, getting increasingly desperate, we see plan B. Get the Israelite midwives to kill boys during childbirth. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. But this plan didn't work either. Here's why. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, for they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Apparently he fell for that. These midwives put themselves in great personal danger, but the result is this. So God was kind to the midwives, and the the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And you see, whatever Pharaoh tries, he seems unable to suppress the growth of the people of God will prevent the promise of God coming to pass. Have you ever done that thing in a swimming pool where you try and hold a beach ball under the surface of the water and sit on it? And you might manage it for a moment, but pop, it keeps coming back up. Pharaoh, whatever he tries, as powerful as he is, is unable to suppress the people of God. And so verse seven, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Verse 12, the more... They multiply, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. In verse 20, the people increased and became even more numerous. For all his power, he seems unable to suppress the growth of the people of God. And so Pharaoh turns to the nuclear option, plan C, genocide. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Yet, even this plan fails because of an extraordinary series of events that points to the sovereignty and providential hand of God working to preserve his people. Look at the beginning of chapter two. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she then she placed the child in it, and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood for at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Her father, Pharaoh, had said, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But it's not just the Israelites that Pharaoh can't control. He can't control his own people, his own family, his own daughter either. Because this is what happened. Then the boy's sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And what's she going to say? What's she going to do? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. And so now the boy's mother is looking after him again, but now she's getting paid to do it. So the woman took the baby, and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to uh, to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, "I drew him out of the water." And if you had your church Bible in front of you at this point, I'd encourage you to look down at the footnote, because it says there that Moses sounds like the Hebrew for "draw out." I guess if it were today, she would have probably called him Andrew because I drew him out of the water. It's that kind of thing. And so as this boy, Moses, grows up in Pharaoh's court, right under Pharaoh's nose, his very name is an affront to the authority of Pharaoh. He has been drawn out of the Nile in direct defiance. Of Pharaoh's, daughter, of Pharaoh's command. And so we see here three plans executed by the king of the superpower of the day, but all of them fail. Here we have a people threatened, but also a promise preserved. The promise of a people through whom all nations would be blessed is preserved. 1,400 years later, another king, King Herod, would pursue a similar course of action to Pharaoh because his power and authority was under threat. And so he ordered the killing of every Israelite boy. But the parents of one boy fled and escaped, ironically, to Egypt. And so Jesus, like Moses, lived, though all the odds were stacked against him. And he turned out to be the saviour who was promised to Eve, who would crush Satan's head and end his tyranny. One through whom all nations would be blessed, as God had promised Abraham. Because of Jesus, the people of God is no longer a genetic group. Because anyone can become one of the people of God by putting their faith in. In Jesus. It's a family of faith. Galatians 3, verse 7 says, All who have faith are children of Abraham. And so you and I, if we put our trust in Jesus, are children of Abraham and part of the people of God. It's as we sung earlier in our service that Jesus is the one born to die for lowly sinners, bruised to crush the serpent's curse, raised to life to heal the nations, raised to grant our spirit's birth. He gives us new birth into the people of God. And so God's people now covers all the earth. And we are part of the people of God. And Jesus has reissued God's promise to us in these new circumstances with these words. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. God will always protect his people and preserve his promises. And if you're sitting there beginning to think, yeah, okay, but how again is this relevant to us? I've got a question for you. A real question. I actually want someone to answer me. So uh, pay attention. (laughs) In Exodus 1, who did God use to preserve his promises? Two people named in Exodus 1. Who did God use to preserve his promises? Someone at home is probably shouting it at the TV right now. Think it through, Sheila. Pharaoh's daughter is in Exodus 2. Otherwise, that would have been a very good answer. That would have been a good answer. In Exodus 1, we could easily pass over them. The midwives. God used... Oh, we even remember their names. Well done, whoever that was. Bonus points. Pua and Shifra. Uh, I, I don't remember their names. Yeah, that is right. Shifra, I do remember their names. He used the midwives. And why did he use the midwives? Well, he was able to use them because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. We read in 20 and 21. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. He was able to use them because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. You see, back in a time when the people of God was a genetic family... The role of the midwives was crucial. They needed more people to be born. But today God's people aren't a genetic family. We're a family of faith. And so who are the midwives of today? You beginning to see it? You are. I am. Anyone who shares the message of the gospel and seeks to foster others into new spiritual life is a spiritual midwife. That's what we're doing when we're helping someone to be born again, isn't it? And that's what we're all called to be spiritual midwives. Those two midwives were commended. Why? Because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they continued bringing new life into the people of God, though it put them in great danger. When the Bible speaks of fearing God, it doesn't mean being terrified of him. It means having a big, awesome view of him. And so can I ask you this? How big is your view of God? The Puritan William Gurnall said this, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. How big is your fear of God, your view of God? Do you fear others too much because you fear God too little? How will the church today live optimistically, positively, in a way that is capable of growth? even in the face of hostility? The answer is this, only when we have a big view of God and fear him more than all others. So who or what do you find it easy to live in greater awe of than God? Is it your employer or the HR department that you might find yourself standing before if you shared your faith at work? Is it the people who, whose opinions fill your social media feed? Is it those behind the headlines you see in the news? Or the forceful opponents of Christianity on the TV? Or is it your family? That can be a very real one. If we have too small a view of God, we'll seek to preserve ourselves instead of trusting him to preserve us and his promises. We won't share the gospel because it'll cost us too much. What a tragedy it would have been in this story in Exodus 1 if the Hebrew midwives had given in to the pressure of Pharaoh, towed the line, and not brought new life into the people of God. And what a tragedy when we do that today, preferring to protect ourselves rather than work to further the promises of God. And so Christian, see the failed plans of Pharaoh and hundreds of years later of Herod. Because as we see great powers, trying and failing to extinguish the people of God, it should give us a great confidence that God will continue to keep his promises, whatever the threat. And confidence in the promises of God enables us to be courageous in obedience of God. Like those midwives were. Courageous obedience today will look like speaking of Jesus and the gospel, even if it could get us into trouble or put us in danger, emboldened by the promises of God. So what might this look like for you? It might look like saying to a friend, why don't we grab a coffee and read the Bible together? That might seem like a terrifying thing to you. You might think, oh, I need to know my Bible far better than I do before I can do that. You really don't. There are some great resources. Uh, I've got some up in my study at home. I can show them to you if you want to try before you buy. There are great resources that make it very easy just to say to someone, should we sit down and read the Bible together? No preparation. You could do that. What about inviting a neighbor to join you here one Sunday or even online? The evangelist Rico Tice says, don't imagine that you're ever going to get to a point in your relationships with people where beginning to talk about Jesus is just this seamless, easy thing. It just feels so natural. Never feels natural. He says, there's always this thing called the pain line that you have to cross. It's always going to be there. You just sometimes you just have to speak of Jesus. Are you willing to cross the pain line to speak of Jesus? Speaking of our faith in Jesus and living for him is increasingly costly. But Christian, let me ask you this. Which will shape your lifestyle more? The threats of the world or the promises of God? Don't be afraid of opposition, or silenced by threats, God will always protect his people and preserve his promises. Instead, be a courageously obedient, spiritual midwife, emboldened by the promises of God. And just imagine what it would be like in these villages if we all did that. Frankly, if half of us did that. Would there be more opposition? Yes. Would there be greater criticism? You bet you would, there would. Absolutely. But you know what else there would be? New life as people come to faith in Jesus. God's people prospering as the church grows. So let me ask you, do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be like those midwives going out on a limb to be part of furthering the promises of God? And if the answer is yes, then who will you seek to be a spiritual midwife to this week? Let's not leave it vague. Name them in your head. Picture them. Got that person? Okay, so how will you seek to be a spiritual midwife to them this week? What are you going to do? Are you going to knock on their door? Are you going to send them a card, a text message, give them a call? How are you going to do that? When are you going to do it? And if as I force you to get more specific. You feel yourself beginning to feel a little bit more afraid now that this is getting a little real. Then remember the midwives in Egypt who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And like them, let's be emboldened by the promises of God to seek to bring new life into his people today. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, in the face of great opposition, we are so struck by the example of these two midwives, Shifra and Pua. And we thank you that they feared you more than they feared Pharaoh, that they were obedient to you, even when it put them in danger. And we thank you that because of their faithfulness, your people continued to grow and your promises were preserved. We pray, please, have mercy and make us and the church in your land, in this land today more like those midwives. As we faithfully, boldly seek to bring new life into the people of God, despite the threats and the hostility that we may face as a result. Please help us to trust you, to fear you and to honour you in our lives this week and beyond.